Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you're listening to Revive Thoughts. In this little testimony, we would raise up a humble stone to the memory of a dear boy who now sleeps in Jesus, and to the praise of that God and Saviour who planted, watered, and gathered his own lily. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered today. We're going back to 1841. We're going to hear a sermon by Robert McShane. And this was a sermon that was preached during the funeral of a young 14-year-old boy named James Lang. Joel, occasionally we do funeral sermons. Uh, Some of the greatest sermons of history were, you know, sad to say, sad maybe to think about, were preached at a funeral service. And this one, it was particularly sad to work on, and yet it was also extremely profound, powerful, just a very good sermon. I... I, yeah, I, I don't know really if there's any other way to say it. it's a 14-year-old boy who had come to Christ, yet he died of illness, but the stories that Robert McShane tells of this man and the way he looked at Christ, I the way after I read it, I just thought to myself, I can't wait to meet this young man in heaven someday because he just sounded so on fire for God. And it's really interesting because this man dies at 14. Robert McShane himself will die at the young age of 29. And so there's a little bit of a similarity in their lives that they both died, I think we would say, much younger than you would expect a young man to die. And so it's really interesting that he would be the person to give this sermon. This sermon, when it came out, it was used in tracks. It was used in all kinds of things. It was a very powerful sermon that honestly really challenged the notion that young people could not be serious about their faith. There was kind of this idea at the time that young people need to mature a lot before they take Christianity seriously. And yet right in this era, the 1830s and 40s, the idea started to go out there like, no, we need to get young people into the faith. And this sermon helps to solidify those movements and say, get the young people. They can be serious about their faith as well. We don't know much about the young man except what you're going to hear about in the sermon, but we know it touched many, many lives. Yeah, it's it's been a hot second, but we have done another sermon by Robert McShane. If you scroll down you know, in the feed, you can find another one there. That sermon was called Do What You Can. We go a little bit more over uh, his life story in that episode there, but he's a, he's a Scottish man. He was born in Edinburgh in 1813, and he has a really interesting testimony because he, he went to Edinburgh University. He did well there, and he was really projecting this wonderful Christian persona. He had that reputation amongst all of his friends. He'd read his book daily. He'd pray, pray these devotions to God, and all of his friends would say that's a stand-up Christian guy. And later, Robert would confess that it was all a show, and that inwardly, none of it meant anything to them. He he said that he was a Pharisee. He'd talk about, you know, he had an occasional fear of life after death, but in general, he didn't have much concern about things of God or his spirit. It was all a show, eventually God would get a hold of his heart. These are always some of the most interesting ones. Uh, probably the most famous, I think, of people who just, they looked like Christians, but weren't was John Wesley. Uh, and it just is just interesting to see. But in, in Robert McShane's case, he wasn't looking like a Christian, but he was like working really hard and not realizing he was doing the works. For, for Robert McShane, it really seemed like he was pretending, like he knew I'm a fake, but I don't care, but I'm going to make sure everyone thinks I'm a really good person. That's the kind of, that's really the way he described it. And there's not as many people who will blatantly say, yeah, I knew I was two-faced and I didn't, you know, I, I wanted to look like an amazing person. So I pretended really hard to be a Christian. Again, even reading his Bible in private just to continue that charade, basically, just forever going forward with the idea that he was a fake. But this all changed in 1831. When Robert was about 18 years old, his older brother, David, died. And his older brother was eight years older than Robert. And by the way, this, <laughs> I just kind of noticed this, but there's a lot of younger people who will die in this story and in this sermon. I, I don't know what was going on in Scotland during this time, but just it doesn't seem like many people in this story make it past the age of 30 or so. Uh, but it seemed like his brother was just a really special guy. He was a believer who loved his brothers very dearly. He meant the world to them. And he was also accepted into like a special writing guild. So he's just a really good guy. It looks like he has a good future ahead of him when suddenly he gets sick. Because part of the sickness kind of hit his mental state. He became depressed, struggled for a long time, but held on to the faith. And right before dying, he suddenly just was filled with joy and certainty. And then he passed on. 
And it's interesting because when David died, he was only a few years younger than Robert would be again when he ends up dying. He's only, he'll die, David dies at 27 and Robert dies at 29. And it's just kind of an interesting parallel how the oldest brother, uh, David, would die and then Robert would die just a little bit older than him. And how much this just moved Robert because he was at a loss. His brother was kind of his world and he lived this worldly life. And when his brother side died, he said like, the, the worldliness that had lived over him just suddenly kind of had a break in it and it just started to collapse and it, his world just didn't seem the same. He wrote in his journal that uh, he w- what he needed now was a brother that never dies. And so he started to just slowly come to Christ, but he described it not as a very dramatic thing, but kind of just a series of steps toward God and away from the world. And somebody went through his journals and said, this is kind of how we see it. But just one day he would go, you know what? I don't play cards anymore. There's just no joy in it. And it takes me away from the higher things. And then suddenly he would go, I don't go to the dances anymore. It just isn't anything for it for me anymore. And then he would just start to say, you know what? I struggled with bitterness today, but I know God can help me with this. And just it just seemed like over time, the world became less important to him. And God became his focus until, you know, at some point that was all he was talking about. And the world had no grasp over him. He slowly seemed to just fade away in his love for the world and just become deeply desirous of the the heavenly one, I said. Yeah, he started attending the Divinity School under Thomas Chalmers. And Joy, oh boy, do we have a sermon by Thomas Chalmers coming up that uh, the listener, you, you're going to want to stay tuned for. Uh, hit that subscribe button if you haven't yeah. already. <laughs> Can I actually, it's a, um, this is a really incredible sermon. This sermon is used, at what was being used by sexual addicts who were trying to be rehabbed, like people who were addicted to porn or sex or cheating or what, whatever it is. I don't know what it was. And this was a sermon they, that this um, institution said they would give this to them. And it said it helped click so many things in people's head of how to break their addictions was listening to, was looking at this sermon by Thomas Chalmers. So I'm really excited for when we can have this one on. And, and we have somebody recording it now, so pray it comes soon. Yeah, so that's coming down the line. This is who Robert studied under at the School of Divinity. While he was there, he also became friends with Horatius Benar and Andrew Benar, who we also have episodes on in the past. Their relationship is kind of similar to John Wesley's relationship with George Whitefield, how they kind of met at school, and then uh, they would strive to follow God together. Benar's brothers and McShane would gather together and pray and read the scriptures and study. They all became close friends. And in this sermon, you'll actually hear him mention these men coming to visit the bedside of this sick child before he died, before he passed on. I always love, I always think it's really fascinating to hear, uh, you know, people from church history, people from 100 years ago, uh, mention being around and fellowshipping with other people that we look up to in church history. It's, it kind of makes the world feel smaller and tighter and we're all just you know part of this this group of believers we're all connected as each of these men would would go off to their own churches they were deeply involved with helping support each other and being on each other's ministry teams they would also visit the the poorest sections of the towns that they were in and preach to the people there they were heartbroken to see how sad the homes of some of the people they had living in their own towns were in 1835, he got licensed to minister. So Robert McShane, finally, he's ordained, everything's going forward, and he was able to start ministering to the church he was in. He was so humble about the opportunity. I read that he said when he spoke about it, he just basically wrote in his Bible, like God allowed one of his lowest saints to carry on his work by having a church. And I don't know, I just think to myself, like, if I was pastoring a church, is that how I would view my first pastor? I think I'd probably be arrogant and be like, aha, I'm going to do some great things and change the world or something like that. And not Robert. He's writing, man, I'm the lowest saint, but even someone like me, God will let use in his kingdom sometimes. It's just what a great view to have. He spent about a year and a half as a minister in rural areas, and this is kind of a wealthier part of the country, so he was up against this growing rationalism of his day of people kind of rejecting God, I only want to believe in what I can see and touch kind of thing. And he was very dutiful. He was a hard worker. He was making an impact. But regular sickness made it difficult for him to teach in a capacity where he was always having to kind of be on the move, running from town to town. And so he found himself having to kind of retire and switch to a new church in 1836 in a town of 4,000. He had 1,100 of those 4,000 uh, going to his church. And that, that's not a small church. That's not a small church by any standard, 1,100 people. And shortly after arriving and starting the large work he had, he actually 
uh, found out about a very small, pleasant church in a beautiful country nearby. And he was tempted to go take over the pastor to that job. He said, he told his father, he wrote in a letter, I, I feel very tempted to go take that church. Um, at my weaker health, I could run a church like that size better. I might be able to be a better service and do longer without being so strained by everything. But after a ra- while, he realized, you know what? No, absolutely not, because I have a town of 4,000 here, and I can't give that up for 300 souls. You know, when God gives you 3,000, you can't give up that you can't give that up for 300 because that's just that's just not going to make the impact. He had to trust and lean on God more, even though he saw himself more as a small church kind of guy, you know, which is, again, just so interesting to me because it's the opposite of what you see. Usually people want to grow their church as big as they can. They want to have the biggest influence possible. I don't know that I've ever read about a pastor who's going, man, I wish I could run that small church down the road. I hate that I had to work at this big church, but you know what? I got to stick to it because God has me here for a reason. It's just such a, a once again, just an invert, just the opposite of what I was expecting. He spent two years working there for the people and he was just doing great, but his, his health again crashes and he has to take a break. So after resting for a bit in Edinburgh, people approached him about going to Jerusalem with an expedition that was being set up to travel there. This was an era where, you know, steamships traveling was becoming more and more practical, more and more affordable. And going to the Holy Land was something that uh, was now graspable for a lot of people, whereas before you kind of just had to imagine what it was like. No one had the money to make that trip or the time to make that trip. And it may seem kind of strange to send someone who is sick to, uh, you know, around the world trip, but a lot of his medical doctors suggested that the Middle East might be good for his health. You know, that kind of that drier air, changing <laughs> it up a bit. Uh, Once always... again, that 1800s medicine coming in yeah. where we've had so many people on our show where the doctor prescribes them a vacation, you know? Right. <laughs> I, you know, there, there, there's probably, there's something to it. I'm sure. I'm sure. We talked a bit about how his, uh, his friend, Andrew Benar would write about their adventures in Jerusalem and send it back to home. And these, these accounts would become sensations back home. People would look forward to them and read about them. And you to see these firsthand accounts about someone that, you know, at the Temple Mount or at other places mentioned in scripture, it was a very exciting time for people back home in Edinburgh. And they were doing real missions work there too. They met with Jews pretty much in every town that they went to and shared the gospel with them. And some of them were receptive to the gospel. Some of them were not receptive to the gospel. Specifically, there's a, a an instance in Tuscany where the Jews there would seize their books and told them that they were banished forever and they could never come back. I thought that sounded like something that would happen to Paul and Axe almost. Yeah, where they just very, take his stuff and go, you'll never return to Tuscany again. And the whole <laughs> mission was the goal of the mission was we're going to convert, you know, Jews and in the minds of the Scottish people. Well, where else would the Jews be but Jerusalem? So that's what they were really wanting to check on. When they got to Jerusalem, it's kind of a bittersweet moment. On the one hand, this is the city of David, right? This is where Jesus once was. It's, you know, everything. It was, they said it was a mind blowing. It's this crazy cool thing. You know, it reminds me a little bit of our episode on the deep dive about the, you know, the first crusades where they reach Jerusalem and everyone starts crying. So there's this, there's this power behind it. But on the other hand, when you're looking at the actual city of Jerusalem itself, the one that they're currently in, not the one from the past in the Bible stories, but the one they were in, and it was horrible. It was just covered in trash. The conditions were bad. The you know everything was broken in. It, it literally they said there was a mountain of trash in certain parts that was so tall it was taller than the walls around the city. It was just a disgusting uh, place. You wouldn't want to live there. Nobody would want to live there. And they wrote back home like the Jews are not in good condition here in Jerusalem. Things are rough here. As they left, McShane uh would later not not long after visiting jerusalem he would get the worst fever of his life on the return trip he he thought he was going to die he had pretty much given up he he assumed this was it this was the end for him and he fought that fever off for weeks the whole expedition back had to stop waiting for him to get healed and it seemed like it was really touch and go he later on described it like i felt like i was born again because i thought i was dying and then i somehow did it basically and he would come back when he returned to the United Kingdom after being gone seven months, 
they found they had done a lot of good, actually. There were organizations now being formed to go and go after reading these stories they had told and go to the Jews in the Middle East. And there were more people wanting to bring the story of God, the gospel there. And their trip had been very fruitful for kind of painting the image of what the Middle East was to people and what Jerusalem was. They had done just a whole lot of good with their trip. It was really well received. And honestly, you couldn't really ask for a more fruitful version of like an expeditionary trip. And while he was also gone, his own home church had had a huge revival that had broken out. Many of the people he'd been praying for had come to Christ and, uh, and it had really started when he, the, the same time he was sick was the same time that revival broke out. He thought that was really interesting. Those two things lined up like that. And he could not have been more happy to hear the news. This wasn't one of those stories of like, he got jealous of the new pastor. He, he thanked the guy that had kind of stepped in for him over and over again for years. Just, I, I couldn't have done it without you. I was so glad you were there when that happened. It's just kind of a beautiful moment where all of these things kind of lined up together for him. Yeah, and when he returned home, he was, he was kind of popular. He was a popular guy. People everywhere wanted to hear from the minister who had visited Jerusalem and could tell the stories of his times there. He spent his final years preaching at his home church and, and touring throughout England and Scotland. Sadly, his life, he wouldn't live much longer after that. He died in 1843, again, before he reached the age of 30. So a short life. He only had seven years of ministry, but it touched the souls of people all over the world and his books and his sermons, they're still read to this day. In this sermon, we hear him describe a very young man dying of sickness. And yet, after reading about McShane's own young, young own death, you know, I read the account of how he died, and it just sounds very similar, where every action, every final word, every passing remark, everything he did in those final weeks and final moments leading up were just praising God, encouraging the people around him. Is you know, As you listen to the sermon, you're going to hear it, where he tells stories of this young man and what he was like before he died. You can just kind of say, and also you, Robert, this would be how you also sounded in those final moments. It is sad to think of someone dying at a young age. I think that's just one of the great tragedies of life. No one would deny that. Yet this reason, the reason this sermon has you know, lasted as long as it has and touched so many lives, I think, is because just how encouraging it is to think of yourself when you were younger and imagine yourself living as faithfully as uh, he was and approaching the end of your life with as much confidence in God as he is. And I think it makes all of us go... I need to live a little bit better for God because if that 14-year-old young man can do it as well as he did, I I need to step up my own walk with God. Um, And I think that's why this sermon has lasted so long. My beloved has gone down into his garden to gather lilies. God loves his mighty works to be remembered. We easily forget the most amazing displays of his love and power. And therefore, it is often right to set up a stone of remembrance. When Israel passed over Jordan on dry land, God commanded Joshua to take 12 stones out of the dry bed of the river and set them up in Gilgal. This was for a memorial that all the people of the earth might know the hand of the Lord, that it is mighty. Whenever the children of Israel looked upon these mossy stones, they would remember how God brought their fathers through the swellings of Jordan. God has done great things for us in this corner of his vineyard, and and we're glad. Many old sinners and many young ones have given clear evidence of a saving change. And though we cannot say the Lord has added to the church daily, yet we can say that from the first day until now, He has never left himself without a witness. For our part, we have done little in the way of making known the doings of the Lord. The record of many a saved soul is on high, and many in their heavenly walk amid a polluted world are living monuments of what a God of grace can do. In this little testimony, we would raise up a humble stone to the memory of a dear boy who now sleeps in Jesus and to the praise of that God and Saviour who planted, watered, and gathered his own lily. James Lang was born on the 28th of July, 1828, and lost his mother before he was eight years old. Of the living members of the family, I, I do not mean to speak. They have not yet finished their course, but are still in the valley of tears and trials and temptations. This only must be noticed that not long after God took away the mother, he dealt great grace and mercy to the elder sister. 
we saw that she was miraculously equipped to watch over the other children with a mother's tenderness. James was seized with the same fever as that of which his mother died, and he never enjoyed good health afterwards. He was naturally a very quiet and reserved boy, uh, not so rough in his language as many of the boys around. One day, uh, when he was lying on his deathbed, he was asking his sister what kind of boy he'd been. Uh, she said he was as wicked as the other boys, only he didn't swear. After I was gone, he told his sister that she was wrong. He never used to swear at home because he was afraid he would be punished for it. But among his companions, he, he often used to swear. Ah, he added, it was a wonder God didn't send me to hell as much as I was a swearer. Another day, hearing some boys swearing near his window, he said, it's, it's a good thing that God did not leave me to continue swearing among those boys. Such was the early life of this boy. He did not know the God who guided him and in whose hand his breath was. And such is the life of most of our children. They cast off fear and restrain prayer before God. The Holy Spirit strives even with children. And when they grieve him and resist his awakening hand, he suffers patiently with them. The first time that James showed any concern for his soul was in the autumn of 1839. It was a very serious time in this place. The divine ladder was set down in the midst of our people and its top reached up to heaven and even strangers were forced to say, surely God is in this place. Oh, that these sweet days would come back again. His elder brother, Alexander, a sailor boy, was at that time awakened to his sins and the same glorious spirit seemed to visit James for a time. One evening, their sister Margaret, uh, returning home from a meeting, found her two brothers on their knees, earnestly crying for mercy. She did not interrupt them, but Alexander afterwards said to her, Jamie feels that he needs Christ too. We will easily know if he is in earnest, for then we will not need to be asked to pray. The test was a trying one. James soon gave up secret prayer and proved that his goodness was like a morning cloud and the early dew which passes. This is the mark of the hypocrite laid down by Job. Will he always call upon God? One Thursday evening, he attended the weekly meeting held in the church. The passage explained was Romans 4, 4-6, and sinners were urged to receive the righteousness without works. Many were deeply affected and would not go away even after the blessing. James was one of those who remained, and when I came to him, he was weeping bitterly. I asked, I asked him if he cared for his soul. He said, well, yes. I asked if he prayed. He said, yes. He was worried on his return home that night, both for others and for his own soul. But these dewdrops soon dried up again. He attended the Sabbath school in the lane where the cottage stands. Often, when the teacher was reading the Bible or some related anecdote, the tears flowed down his cheeks, but he tried to conceal his emotion from the other boys for fear that they should laugh at him. He afterwards said in his last illness, Oh, that I had just another night of the Sabbath school. I would not care that they might laugh at me now. Sometimes, during the reading and prayer in the family, the word of God was like a fire to him, so that he could not bear it. And after it was over, he would run to his wild companions in order to drown out the cries of his touch conscience. One night after his return, a neighbour was sitting by the fire reading the work of an old divine. It stated that even carnal men sometimes receive a conviction they can never forget. She turned to James and asked him if he had never received a conviction that he could not forget. Yes, he said, I can never forget it but we cannot seek Christ twice. And so did the long-suffering patience of God wait upon this little boy. The good spirit strove with him, and Jesus stood at the door and knocked, but he would not hear. The day of Emmanuel's power and the time of love was, however, nearly here. As the cold winds of October set in, his sickly frame was affected. He became weak and breathless. One Tuesday, in the end of October, he turned decidedly worse, 
and became intensely anxious about the salvation of his soul. His lamentable cry was, O Jesus, save me, save me. Margaret asked if his concern was real, for he had often deceived her hopes before. He wept and said yes. His body was greatly afflicted, but he forgot it all in the intense anxiety for his precious, never-dying soul. On Saturday, I paid a visit to their humble cottage and found the little sufferer sitting by the fire. He began to weep bitterly while I spoke to him of Jesus, having come into the world to save sinners. I was enabled in a simple manner to answer the objections that sinners make to an immediate closing with Christ. Margaret was in wonder, for the minister could not have spoken more to the specific of her brother if he had not known it. And she inwardly thanked God, for she saw he was directing it. James spent the rest of the day on his knees in evident distress of soul. Oh, how little most of these called Christians know what it is to pass through such deep waters. Margaret asked him if he was seeking Jesus. He said yes, she asked. If he would like anything, a bit, a bit of bread? He said no, but I would take the bread of life. If you would give it to me, she replied, I cannot give you that, but if you seek it, you will get it. He remained alone till evening and was never off his knees. Towards night, he came to the other end of the cottage and asked this question. Have I only to believe that Jesus died for sinners? Is that all? He was told, yes. Well, I believe that Jesus died for me, for I am poor and a hell-deserving sinner. I have been praying all this afternoon that when Jesus shed his blood for sinners, he would sprinkle some of it on me. And he did. He then turned up Romans 5.8 and read these words. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. His sister wept for joy, and James added, I am not afraid to die now, for Jesus has died for me. Often after this, he asked his sister to read him Romans 5, Psalm 53 and Psalm 66. These were his favourite portions with him. From that day, it was a pleasant time for me to visit the cottage of this youthful inquirer. Many happy hours I spent beneath that humble roof. Instead of dropping passing remarks, I would open a passage of the word that he might grow in knowledge. I fear that in general, uh, we are not sufficiently careful in regularly instructing the sick and dying. A pious expression and a fervent prayer are not enough to feed the soul that is passing through the dark valley. Surely, if sound and spiritual nourishment is needed by the soul at any time, it is in those dark hours, when Satan uses all his arts to disturb and destroy he was found, uh, he was very fond of the Song of Solomon, and many parts of it were open to him. One day I spoke on Song 513. His lips are like lilies, dropping sweet-smelling myrrh. I told him that these were some of the drops that fell from the lips of Jesus. If any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. If I came to seek and to save that which was lost... Will you be made whole? I gave them to them eternal life. He said solemnly, that, that's fine. Another day I spoke on Psalm <clears throat> another day I spoke on Psalm 515. His legs are like pillars of marble set upon sockets of fine gold, and showed the almighty strength of the Lord Jesus. The next day when I came in, I asked him how he was doing, but without answering my question, he said, I am glad you told me about Jesus's legs being like pillars of marble, for now I see that he is able to carry me and all my sins. At another time, I read to him Isaiah 43 too. When you passed through the waters, I will be with you, and explained that when he came to the deep, deep waters, the Lord Jesus put his foot down beside his and weighed with him. This often comforted him, 
for he believed it as firmly as if he had seen the pierced foot of Jesus placed beside his own. And he said to Margaret, If Christ put down his foot beside mine, then I have nothing to fear. But ah, how few were the children's fear when the Lord and speak like this to one another. Surely the Lord stands behind the wall watching and he will write the words in his book of remembrance. And they will be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on that day when I make up my jewels. Some of my dear brothers in the ministry visited this little boy to see God's wonderful works in him and to be helpers of his joy. It is often of great importance in visiting the dying to call in the aid of fellow labourers. Different lines of testimony to the same saviour are brought together to meet in the chamber of sorrow. In the mouth of two or three witnesses will every word be established. Mr Cumming of Dumbarney, visiting him one day, asked him if he suffered much pain. James, sometimes, the pastor asked, when you are in much pain, can you think of the sufferings of the Lord Jesus? James, when I see what Jesus suffered for me, it takes away my pain. Mine is nothing to what he suffered. He often repeated these words, my light affliction, which is but for a moment. At another time, Mr. Miller of Wallacetown called with me and our little sufferer spoke very sweetly on eternal things. He asked him, would you like to get better, James? He responded, I would like the will of God. The man pressed on. But if you were getting better, would you just live as you did before? James, if God did not give me grace, I would. During the same visit, I was asking Margaret when he was first awakened. She told me of his first concern and then of the first day I had called. James broke in and said, ah, but we must not lean upon that. His meaning was that past experiences are not the foundation of a sinner's peace. I never met with any boy who had so clear a discovery of the way of pardon and acceptance through the doing and the dying of the Lord Jesus laid to our account. Surely God was his teacher, for God alone can reveal the sweetness and glory of this truth to the soul of man. Mr Boner of Collis often visited him, and these were sweet visits to little James. One day when Mr Boner was opening up some scripture to him, he said, Do you know what I am saying, Jamie? James said, Yes, but I cannot feel its power. I, I see it all. Mr Boner said, I think there would be a pleasure in seeing the people drink when Moses struck the rock, even though one did not get a drink themselves. James, Ah, but I would like a drink. One of the loveliest features in the character of this little boy was his intense love to the souls of men. He often spoke with me on the folly of men living without Christ in the world. I will never forget the compassionate glance of his clear blue eyes as he said, What a pity it is that they do not come at all to Christ, that they would be much happier. He often reminded me of the verse, God, love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God. One Sabbath evening, I spoke to the students in the Sabbath school about him. When the school was over, they all came to his cottage to see him. The little group stood silent round his bed while he spoke to them with great seriousness. You all know what I was. I was no better than you. But the Holy Spirit opened my eyes and I saw that I was on the very brink of hell. Then I cried to Jesus to save me and he gave me a new heart. I put my finger on the promise and would not come away without it. And he gave me a new heart. And he is as willing to give you all a new heart. I have sinned with you. Now I would like you to come to Christ with me. You would be far happier in Christ than in your games and play. There are sweeter pleasures in Christ. Here are two awful verses to me. There are... There is a dreadful hell and everlasting pains. There sinners must, with devils dwell in darkness, fire and chains. Can such a wretch as I escape this cursed end? And may I hope 
Whenever I die, will I to heaven ascend? Then pointing to the fire, he said, You could not keep your finger long in there. But remember, hell is a lake of fire. I would give you all a prayer to pray tonight. Go and tell Jesus that you are poor, lost, hell-deserving sinners. And tell him to give you a new heart. Remember, he's willing. And oh, be earnest. You'll no get unless you're earnest. These were nearly his very words. Strange scene. A dying boy speaking to his fellow students. They were impressed for a time, but it soon wore off. Several Sabbath evenings, the same scene was replayed. The substance of all his warnings was, come to Christ and get a new heart. He often told me afterwards that he'd been inviting them to Christ. But, he added, they'll not come. One evening during the week, a number of the children came in. After speaking to them in a very sombre manner, he took from under his pillow a little book called A Letter About Jesus Christ. He turned up the part where it tells of six boys laying their finger on the promise and pleading for its fulfilment. He was not able to read it to them, but he said he would give it to them, and each boy should keep it two days, read it, and do the same. The boys were very impressed and agreed to the proposal. One day during his illness, his sister found him crying very bitterly. She asked him what ailed him. He said, Do you remember when I was at the day school at the time of the revival? One day, when we were writing our copies, one of the boys had been somewhat anxious about his soul. He wrote a line to me on a slip of paper. Ezekiel 36, 26, to James Lang, pray over it. I took the paper, read it, tore it and threw it on the floor and laughed at the boy. Oh, Margaret. If I hadn't laughed at him, maybe he would have sought Christ until he had found him. Maybe I have been the means of ruining his soul to all eternity. In how touching a manner this shows the tenderness of his care for the souls of others. And also how how a rash word or deed, careless at the time, may plant a sting in the dying pillow. One night I went with uh, my little cousin to see James. I said... I've brought my Jamie to see you. He took him kindly by the hand and said, we're two Jamies together. May we both meet in heaven. Be earnest to get Christ. You'll not get Christ unless you're earnest. When we were gone, he said to his sister, although Jamie bides with the minister, unless the spirit opens his eyes, he cannot get Christ. His knowledge of the peculiar doctrines of the gospel was very wonderful. It was not mere head knowledge. It came fresh and clear from the heart, like spring water welling up from a great depth. He felt the sovereignty of God very deeply. The greatest need in the religion of children is generally a sense of sin. Artless simplicity and confidence in what is told are in some respects natural to children. And this is the reason why we are so often deceived by promising appearances in childhood. The reality of grace in a child is best known by the sense of sin. Little James often wondered how God sent his servant so often to him, such a hell-deserving sinner. This was a common expression of his. On one occasion, he said, I have a wicked, wicked heart and, and a tempting devil. He'll never leave me alone, but this is all the hell that I'll get. Jesus bore my hell already. Oh, Margaret, this wicked heart of mine would be hell enough for me, though there were no other. But there are no wicked hearts in heaven. He often prayed, come Holy Spirit and make me holy. Make me like Jesus. The way of salvation through the righteousness of Christ was always sweet to him. He had an uncommon grasp of it. Christ crucified was all his salvation and all his desire. Another time, a little boy who was in concern for his soul came to see James and told him how many chapters he had read and how often he had prayed. James did not answer at the time, 
But a little after, he said to his sister, David was here and he told me how many chapters he had read, etc. I see upon his working plan. But I must tell him that it's no his reading, nor his praying, but Jesus alone that must save him. Another day, he said, the devil is letting me see that his word and another word in my prayer is sin. But I just tell him it's, it's all sin. I bid him to go to Jesus. There is no sin in him. And I have taken him to be my saviour. He had a very clear discovery of the dead and helpless condition of the carnal mind and of the need of the Holy Spirit to convert the soul, telling me about the same boy and of what he had been saying to him. He added, but it is nonsense to speak of these things without the Holy Spirit. Often when he saw the family preparing to go to church, he would pray that I might be filled with the Holy Spirit in speaking so that some sinners might be caught. He was no stranger to temptations from the wicked one. I scarcely ever visited him without him speaking to me of this. A few days before he died, he said, I am afraid I will not be saved yet, for the devil will catch my soul as it leaves my body. But Jesus says, you will never perish. If I am in the hand of Jesus, the devil cannot pluck me out of that. Once I found him kneeling on a pillow by the fire. He complained of great darkness and doubted his interest in Christ. I told him that we must not close with Christ before we feel him, but because God has said it, and that we must take God's word even in the dark. After that, he always seemed to trust God in the dark, even at times when he had no inward evidence of being Christ's. At one of these times, a believer, who is often in great darkness, came in and asked him, When you are in darkness, Jamie, how do you do? Can you go to Jesus? He answered in his own pointed manner, Annie, I have no other gate to go to. One day, a believer called and prayed beside his bed, asking for him that he might be filled with all the fullness of God. The same person came another day, and before praying inquired, What will I ask for you? He said, Well, just pray what you have prayed for me the last time. You prayed that I might be filled with all the fullness of God. I cannot get any more than that, but I do not seek any less today. A dear Christian, a dear Christian lady used to bring him flowers. She spoke to him of Christ being the lily of the valley and on one occasion brought him one. He asked her to pick it out from the rest and give it into his hand. Holding the gentle flower in his pale, wasted fingers, he looked at it and said, This beauty might convince the world that there is a God, though there were nothing else. Aye, there is a God. There is a heaven. There is a hell. And there is a judgment seat, whether they will believe it or no. He said this in a very solemn way, pausing between every clause of the sentence. He loved singing praise to God. Though not able to join in himself, he frequently made us sing beside his bed and often begged them to sing the 23rd Psalm. I have no strength to sing here, he would say. I have a heart, but not strength. When I get to heaven, I'll be able to sing there. The 65th paraphrase was, a, was precious to him, especially that part. Hark how the adoring hosts above. He loved these verses and often wished that they were among his praising company. My sister once sent him a hymn, The Fullness of Jesus. He said he liked it all, but he liked the last verse best. I long to be with Jesus amid the heavenly throng, to sing with saints his praises, to learn the angel's song. He delighted in secret prayer, in weakness and pain, Yet he spent hours upon his knees, communing with an unseen God. When unable for the outward part of the exercise, he said, Oh, oh Margaret, I prayed to Jesus as long as I was able, but now I'm not able, and he does not want it from me. But I'm just always giving him my heart. 
Many a night he got no sleep. I asked him if he was tired during the silent struggles. He said, no, his left hand is under my head and his right hand does embrace me. God gave this dear boy a very calm and cheerful spirit in the midst of his trials. Neither bodily pain nor the assaults of the devil could sour his temper or ruffle his calm. At any time when his pain increased, he would say, It is the Lord. Let him do what seems to him good. Once he said to me, I was confused when I heard you say that Christ was sweet, but now I feel him to be sweet, so sweet. On one occasion, when he was suffering much pain, he said, Five minutes in glory will make up for all this suffering. A young woman who lived in the same lane was awakened to deep concern the same winter that James was brought to Christ. Before her concern, she never came to see James, though her mother often advised her to do so. But when she was brought to feel her sin and misery, she came in every Sabbath night and was always tenderly kind to James. How are you tonight, Jamie? She would say. You are well off when you can say, I've found Christ. Early, early in spring, this young woman evidently found the true rest for her weary soul in Jesus. She became a candidate for the Lord's table and was to have been admitted, but God called her away to sit at the table that can never be drawn. She died full of joy with the praises of God upon her lips. Margaret had been present at this deathbed, and when she returned home, she told James. He answered with great composure. I wish I'd been with her, but I must wait for the Lord's time. Betsy is singing now, and I will soon be there too. James used to take the bitterest medicines without any reluctance. He folded his hands, shut his eyes, and asked God to bless it to him. Ah, Margaret, if God does not bless it to me, it will do me no good. Often she asked, isn't it bitter? He would say, yes, but Jesus had a bitterer cup to drink than me. In the summer of 1841, another remarkable boy named James Wallace had died in the Lord. He was one whom God taught in a wonderful manner. He had a singular gift of prayer and was made useful to many, both old and young. James Lang had known him well in former days. In 1839, a younger brother of James Lang named Patrick had died also, with evidence of having undergone a divine change. In the end days of his illness, he was used as an instrument in awaking another boy, whose impressions I earnestly hope may never wear away. David had been a very wild boy, so much so that he was expelled from the Sabbath school. He found his ways into James's cottage, and there saw exemplified the truths he would not listen to in school. From that day till James died, David regularly visited him and learned from him with deepest interest the things that belonged to his peace. James often prayed with him alone. Sometimes both prayed at the same time for a new heart. He pleaded with this boy to seek Jesus when young, for it's easier to find Jesus when we are young. Remember what I told you, for I will soon be in heaven. The boy asked, Will you get to heaven? James replied, Oh yes, all that believe in Christ get to heaven, and I believe that Jesus died for me. Now David, if I see you on the wrong side, you will remember that I often warned you to come to Christ. The boy said, I'll have nobody to pray with and tell me about my soul when you're, when you're dead. J James replied, I have told Margaret to pray for you and I have told the minister. And go to our minister and he will tell you the way to come to Christ. Three times a day, this anxious inquirer sought the prayers and counsel of his youthful instructor till James's strength gave way and he could not, <clears throat> couldn't talk any more. The day before he died, the boy came in, and, and James could hardly speak, but he looked steadily at him and said, Seek on, David. 
The last visit I paid to this young Christian was on the Tuesday before he died. In company with Mr. Miller of, of Wallacetown and Mr. Smith, uh, one of our Jewish missionaries at uh, Pest, who was at the same day to sail from his native land. After speaking a little, uh, we prayed and I asked what I would pray for him. James said, dying grace. He shook hands with us all. When the missionary held his hand, he said, God's people have much need to pray for you and for them there. When we'd gone out, he said, maybe I'll never see the minister again. On the Thursday, he said, ah, Margaret, it's not easy to die. You know nothing about it. Even though you have Christ, it is dark. The same day, he asked her to give David his Sunday trousers and new boots that he might go to church. He gave his father the dying thief book and said, I am going to give Alec my Bible. There was a piece of money under his pillow. He, he said it was to buy Bibles for that that never heard of Jesus. His aunt came in on the Friday morning. He said, oh, aunt, don't put off seeking Christ to a deathbed. For if I had had Christ to seek today, what would have become of me? But I have given my heart to Christ. Margaret asked him, what will I do? I, I will miss your company in this house. James answered, you must just go all the more to Jesus. Do not be sad about me now when I am, when I am dead, Margaret. If I thought that, I would be sorry. And more than that, God would be angry at you, for I would be far happier. It is better to depart and be with Christ. Ask grace to keep, from you, to keep you from it. All, all that day he spoke very little. In the evening he grew much worse. His sister wished to sit up with him that night, but he would not allow her. He said, these eyes will soon see him whom your soul loves. James said, aye. After midnight, Margaret, seeing him worse, arose and woke her father. She tried to conceal her tears, but James saw them and said with a look of solemn earnestness, Oh woman, I'm confused to see you like this. He spoke little after, and about one o'clock on the Saturday morning, 11th of June, 1842, fell asleep in Jesus. From this powerful testimony, all children, and especially the dear, the dear children committed to my care, should learn an impressive lesson. What is said of Abel, is true of this dear boy. Ye, he being dead, yet speaks. He warned many of you that when he was on his dying bed, he prayed for you and longed for your conversion. And now that he has gone to the world of praise and holiness and love, the history of his dying hours is a warning and an invitation to each of you. You see here, that you are not too young to have the Holy Spirit striving with you. You are not too young to resist the Holy Ghost. You are not too young to be converted and brought to Christ. If you die without Christ, you will surely perish. Most of you are wicked, idle, profane, prayerless, ungodly children. Many of you are open Sabbath breakers, liars and swearers. If you die like this, you will have your part in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone. You will see this little boy and others whom you know in the kingdom of God, and you yourselves rejected. Oh, repent and be converted, that your sins might be blotted out. You may die very soon. Oh, that your end may be like his. Parents also... You parents also may learn from this to seek the salvation of your children. Most parents in our day are like the cruel ostrich in the wilderness, which leaves her eggs in the earth and warms them in the dust and forgets so that the foot may crush them or that the wild beast may break them. She is hardened against her young ones as though they were not hers. How many of you hold up your children before God and the congregation and solemnly vow to bring them up for God, 
to pray for them and in your family with them, and then return to your house with the guilt of perjury upon your soul. Alas, aren't the family altars of Scotland for the most part broken down and lying desolate? Isn't family worship in the most of, in most of your houses an empty name? Don't family quarrels and unholy companies and profane jests and sordid worldliness prevail in most of your homes? What else can you expect that your children will grow up in your image as formalists, sacrament breakers, loose livers, fierce, unstable, stubborn, high-minded lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God? Oh, that God would touch your hearts by such a tale as this that you may repent and turn to the Lord and yearn over your children in the heart of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you love to see them fall asleep in Jesus? Does anyone not want to meet them at the right hand of the judge? Seek their conversion now, if you would meet them in glory in the next life. How will you bear to hear their young voices in the judgment saying, This father never prayed for me. This mother never warned me to flee from the wrath to come. Dear brothers in the ministry and teachers in the Sabbath school, suffer the word of exhortation from one who is your brother and companion in tribulation. May we learn from this to be more earnest, both in prayers and labours, in seeking the salvation of little children. We have here one bright example, in addition to all those who have been recorded before that God can convert and edify a child with the same ease with which he can change the heart of a grown man. I have the religious care, I have with religious care refrained from embellishing or in any way exaggerating the simple record of God's dealing with this boy. We must not speak wickedly for God or talk deceitfully for him. All who knew, knew him can bear witness that I have spoken the words of truth and soberness. Indeed, the half has not been told. How much proof is there then that God is willing and able to convert the young? How plain that if God gives grace, they can understand and relish divine things as fully as those of mature age. A carnal mind of the first order will forever despise and reject the way of salvation by Christ. But the mind of a child moved by the Holy Spirit will forever realise and delight in the rich and glorious mystery of the gospel. I thank you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hid these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them for babies. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in your sight. Let us awake from an unbelieving dream. Let us no longer be content to labour without fruit. Let us seek the present conversion to Christ of our little children. Jesus has reason to complain of us that he can do no mighty works in our Sabbath schools because of our unbelief. Now, for the King Eternal, Immortal, Invisible, the only wise God, be honour and glory forever and ever. Amen. This story is very powerful. The funeral, I, I don't even know, can't even imagine what it was like to actually be there at the funeral of this young man. But I, I know for me living it, and I, I heard it, I was convicted. But as I said too at the, at the beginning of the episode, I also felt like, wow, this is a really cool person. I cannot wait to meet him in heaven someday to, to live with such confidence and to trust God, to, to know that you're going to die, you're going to die young, and yet to spend every single moment, it seemed, just wrestling with God, not perfect, but but pointing others to Christ, telling people much older than you how they need to live for the Lord Jesus. I, I think that's the kind of confidence that I hope to have in my own walk. And I hope I hope to approach death with the same level of just trusting God that Robert and uh, this young man did. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by William Hay Smith 
He was born and raised in Peterhead in the far northeast of the UK and he now lives with his wife and son in Albertine, Scotland. Through the kindness of God, he was saved by Christ as a young child and as a young man, he was given the opportunity to study chemical engineering in London, England, where through hard work and various Christian friends and mentors, he, he gradually appreciated more and more what he calls the awesomeness of Jesus. His secular work as a professional engineer has allowed him the privilege of living in Qatar and Malaysia and France for several years and even in the great state of Texas. Currently, he serves at Trinity Church in Albertine, Scotland. If you enjoyed this episode, if you enjoy Revive Thoughts, if maybe you've checked out our other shows, uh, especially Mars and Missionaries, and you're listening to Revive Studios, you like what we're doing, and you want to support us, we highly encourage you to join us on Patreon. Another way you can support us is our website and our merchandise store. But if you haven't checked out our Patreon, we have special episode Deep Dives, where we've gone through the Salem Witch Trials, uh, the First Crusade, the story of Joan of Arc, really long uh, episodes, hours long, where we as Christians, Joel and I, discuss the Christian perspective on these different issues. We also have, uh, we'll send our special Patreons uh, bookmarks and stickers. We don't sign the bookmarks anymore. Sorry if you, if you were really wanting to sign one, we do apologize. But with me and my wife in Cambodia, we're not able to sign those. But you still get Martyrs and Missionaries bookmarks and Martyrs and Missionaries uh, stickers along with Revive Thoughts ones too. You also will get uh, oh, you also get access to the ad-free feed where you no longer have to hear ads in the episodes. If you're someone who doesn't like those, I understand the Patreon is a way to do that. And uh, there are other things that come with it. Occasionally, Joel and I will do behind the mics, different things like that you can go back and listen to. And, but but honestly, the most important thing is it just, it just helps us do Revive Studios. That extra bit of support allows us to pay for things, to do things, and to grow the studio uh, beyond what it is. And there are always things happening in the background. We can't always tell everyone what's going on, but we're very excited about the future that God is doing here. And we really appreciate all of our supporters. Those of you who do support, those of you who are already listeners, you don't get to hear it enough, um, but we really thank you. Thank you so much, Patreons. You guys have done so much for us, and I hope you know that every dollar, we have deeply appreciated it, and we've used it all to pour into the ministry to try to make it bigger. This is Troy Angel, and this is Revive Thoughts. Thoughts.